in uh, the last verses that we looked at last week in our, in our current series that we've been in for some time now, Peculiar People, we learned several amazing, amazing things, like mind-blowing things that uh, are true of us as Christians. If you've come to Christ, if He is your Lord and your Savior, we looked at these incredible things that are true of you, that are your reality, uh, all because of Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, we, we saw that we are a chosen race. We shouldn't be. We have no reason to be, but we are a chosen race. Peter said we are a royal priesthood, a, a, a royal house of priests representing him to the world and being able to intercede for other people as we have been also interceded for. He said that we were a holy nation set apart, a people for his own possession, which is where we get the, the phrase peculiar people uh, that the whole series is framed around, special, uh, different, unique, set apart unto God. He said, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, all that was over us was judgment and wrath for our sin. But he said, but now through Christ and in Christ you have received mercy. So amazing things. And, and there, was, there was more, obviously, but that's kind of the highlight. That if you're in Christ today, those things are true of you. If you did not have any other identity, uh, any other uh, purpose to hold on to before Christ, in Christ you now have a rich identity. You have purpose. You have, you have hope. You have a calling. You are made holy. You have received mercy. Incredible things that are true of you if you're in Christ. Now, in the following verses of the same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to see the way those realities that we spent time looking at last week should affect the way we actually live, as in day in, day out, real-time living. How all of those incredible realities are meant to affect our daily living. The application of all that. So first, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And there are uh, two major, major uh, areas or categories of life that should affect the way we live in relation to all that has been true of us. All that's been made true of us. So first, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 uh, to see the first major way that all of those wonderful things and realities are meant to affect the way we live. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. And Peter says this, Beloved, so he's writing to the Christians, the church. Beloved, I urge you, not just I, I suggest, I I want you to think about it. It might be a good idea if you do this. No, he's saying, I urge you. There's desperation. You, you hear that, right? I urge you. If somebody urges you to do something, there's some passion there. There's something important. There's a priority. There's power behind what they're saying. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, not permanent residents, not not uh, people that are anchored 
here as sojourners or as, as pilgrims, wanderers, exiles. There's, there's something temporary there. That means this isn't where your home really is. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And there's a lot that would be in that category. We would be here all day talking about the different things that fall under that. Uh, I mean, you can think about that and fill in the blank of, of what that could be. I mean, there's so many different things. But he's saying all the, the passions of the flesh, in other words, the sinful flesh, the carnal man, sinful nature, all that is part of, of the sinful flesh and those passions, abstain from those things. Avoid them. Run from them. Retreat from it. Reject it. Why? Because he says those things wage war against your soul. Beloved, as sojourners and exiles, people that are living in this world but are not of this world, that are not anchored to this world, you're, you're a wanderer here, you're a temporary resident, you're in exile here, abstain from the passions of the flesh which, which wage war against your soul. Do you hear the, the seriousness of what Peter's expressing here? The desperation of this? Friends, uh, I just want to tell you before we go any further, we need to stop and really heed this. We need to take this seriously because this was not something that was written just to Peter's original audience. This was not just a first century need. This was not just the, uh, something that the the early church and the, the Jewish Christians that were spread a, abroad in Asia Minor because of persecution or the Gentile believers that were struggling with their identity. This was not just something they needed to hear. We need to hear this just as much. We too, living in this century here in America, here in West Virginia, we are living here physically, sure, and there's no need to try to pretend that we're not part of this world and that we're not American citizens or living here. I mean, that's reality. That's one aspect of reality. That's kind of like the, the one side of a coin. But we also need to remember and realize and actually believe and live like we believe that though that is true, there is a greater truth of us if we're in Christ. And that is that the citizenship that we have physically is not our full citizenship, nor is it the, the foremost citizenship that we have. We are sojourners here. We're pilgrims. We're vagabonds. We're wanderers. We're in exile, in temporary exile from our true home. We need to see ourselves that way. That needs to color and shade every aspect of our life that we live as Americans, as West Virginians, as you go through life, you go to work, you go to Walmart, you pay your taxes, you fill up your car with gas, you do all the normal everyday life things. What needs to define your rhythm of life, your normal routines and rhythms of life is remembering this is not fully who I am. This is not fully what I am. In Christ, who I am is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What I am is a resident of an eternal kingdom. 
That needs to affect the way we, we think and live. And, and as a result of that, Peter is saying, abstain from the passions of, of everyday normal life in the, in the world. In other words, uh, the regular way of living in the world, the regular way that, that people that are not sojourners and exiles, that are rooted in this world, that are not part of Christ, the way they live is not abstaining from the passions of the, of the flesh. Rather, they, they give all of themselves to that. There's no abstaining at all. Whatever I want, I'm going to do. Whatever I feel, I'm going to allow myself to do. I'm going to do me. That's the mantra of the residents of this world. No abstaining. It's, it's indulging. So Peter is saying that's not how you're supposed to be because that's not what you are. You've come to Christ. You have, you're now a chosen race. You're now a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people not for your, your own uh, sake and own way of living. You're not a people for this world. You're a people for His own possession. You're now a peculiar people. You've received mercy. So here's how that's supposed to translate into action. Abstain from all the passions of your flesh, which you have been set apart from. And it wages war against your soul. So there's a practical benefit there too. Why would you indulge in something that it wages war against your very soul to defeat you? And that's how we need to view sin. We need to take sin more seriously, church. Do you agree with that? We need to take sin more seriously. It is not a light thing. There's no such thing as a little sin. It doesn't exist. All sin wages war against our very soul. So when we sin, it's not even just a physical thing. And we are so physically minded. Uh, so much of the way we operate and view things is through the lens of the physical or the external. But there is always so much more going on beneath the surface. And so as you fight against passions of the flesh, as you deal with temptation, which we all do, uh, your struggle with, with a certain kind of temptation is going to be very likely different from the person next to you. The point is, though, we all are going to be dealing with these passions of the flesh that Peter is telling us to abstain from. We've all got them. There's all, all sorts of different passions vying for our devotion. And all of them, no matter how appealing they might be to our physical senses, they wage war against our very soul. So abstain from them. And then he goes on, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and that's a way of saying the unbelieving world. The, because remember, there are Gentile believers he's writing to, so that's not a knock on them. He's saying, keep your conduct among the unbelieving world. As peculiar people, as set-apart holy people, you need to live as holy people. That's what he's saying. In an unholy world, live holy. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Well, here's the purpose of it. So that when, not if, when they, the unbelieving world, 
speak against you as evildoers. In other words, when they slander you, when they bring accusation against you, when they are hostile to you, you could even just say when they, when they persecute you in some way, in some form, when they oppose you, which will happen, it's inevitable. They're not going to like that you're not living the way they do. They're not going to like that you stand out from them. They're going to say what you hear all the time, don't judge me. Boy, isn't that a favorite statement? Anytime you draw attention to something that is wrong, it's, nope, you're, you're judging me. This is me. I, let me do me. You do you. I have my truth. You have your truth. So when they speak against you as judgmental or critical or bigots or whatever, they slander you, they bring charge against your character, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a reference to the second coming of Christ. It's a fact. It's a reality. He really came. He really lived. He really died. He really rose again and ascended to the Father where He ever lives to intercede for you and me. And He's really coming back. He's really coming back. And the way we as people that are God's own people, the way we are to live our lives in this temporary exile until He comes, we are to live our lives in such a way that it silences all their slander and forces them to acknowledge and admit there's something real about the gospel they profess. And we are to live in such a way that God uses us and our lives to bring them to Himself, and then they give glory to God for how they saw us live. That's how it's supposed to be. That's what's supposed to mark our lives as Christians, as peculiar people, as sojourners and exiles. What Peter says here reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, Peter was there, so I think that the Holy Spirit, with his inspirational work, probably brought this to Peter's mind when he said this. When he said that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I think he probably thought of of Matthew chapter 5. I mean, it wasn't Matthew chapter 5 for him. It was just what Jesus said. But what Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, the second part of verse 16, Jesus Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See the connection there? I mean, that's just about word for word what Peter is saying. What does that mean? Breaking it down, it means this. It means that Christians, you and me, if we're in Christ, Christians are residents of earth, but we're also citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We're residents of earth, sure. No need to deny that. But we're also citizens of a a heavenly kingdom. You've probably heard the phrase, and it's a... It's meant to be derogatory or critical. They're so heavenly-minded, they're no, what? Earthly good. I want to suggest to you, that's completely backward. The more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. That's how it should be of of you and me. Philippians 3.20, Paul, and this is like I said last week, Paul and Peter, they just, man, they track together. 
It's what you would hope and expect. Philippians 3.20, Paul said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's true of us as believers. That is your reality this morning, Christian. Uh, As you do life here, remember, you have an even greater life that you're already part of. You You just haven't caught up to it yet. But it's, it's an absolute reality. In fact, it's even greater in reality than the current reality you're living in. So, that means the implication or, or application of that is, is this. While living in this world, we must remain loyal to the King of Heaven. While, while living in this world as citizens of America or citizens of West Virginia or Beckley, As citizens here, we need to remember we are citizens first and foremost of heaven. Our our order has shifted. Our priority has shifted. Before we came to Christ, all we had was, was being a citizen of this earth, of this world. That's it. But in coming to Christ, our our citizenship has shifted. And so we are first a citizen of heaven. And then After that, under that, we are citizens of wherever else we're living physically. And so that means while living in this world, we have to remain loyal to the King of Heaven in everything we do. And so the the right question to ask in light of that being true is how? How do we do that? Okay, Pastor, that's true, and I accept that, I believe that. Great, amen. But how? How do I do that? How do I go about living loyally to my king when I'm stuck here in this temporary exile? Well, I want to give you two major applications of how we do that. First, the first way that we do that, that we remain loyal to the king of heaven while living in this world, is that we don't retreat from the world, but we do reject the way the world lives. So this is, this is very practical. We don't retreat from the world. We're, I'm not calling us to monasticism. You know, let's just all go join a, a, a monastery somewhere. Let's sit up on a mountain to ourselves and just chant all day. No. We don't retreat away from the world, but we do reject the way the world lives. So putting it another way, we function within the world. We go to work. We go to the store, we pay taxes, we have homes, we function within the world, but we don't become part of the world's system. You see the distinction? Function within the world, but don't become part of the system of the world. Let me give you an illustration of this, and this is from the Bible itself. Uh, side note, pause. This is, this is something that is um, not just what pastors do to try to provide illustrations uh, from Scripture. This is something that is very fundamental to actual Bible study that any of you should do. In other words, when we're, we're looking at a passage in the Bible, what we need to ask ourselves is, what I'm reading before me here and the principles that I'm seeing here and the narrative that I'm, I'm following, can I see that anywhere else in Scripture? 
Is what I'm reading here and the, the truth that I'm seeing, the principles that are here, can I see that lived out somewhere else in the Bible? In other words, you let the Bible be its own commentary. You let the Bible provide the illustration of what you're reading and the principle and the facts that you're looking at. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you an illustration from Scripture itself. And uh, this comes from what is, to many of you, probably a very, very famous story. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy, used of God, though. He was the king of Babylon. He came. He invaded Judah. Um, he, he destroyed Jerusalem. He took away as captive a lot of the noble families, people that were part of the, the royal court. He took them away because he knew, okay, they, these are the people that are, are learned. You know, they're the wise ones. They have intelligence. They, they are capable people, and I want to I wanna use them in my kingdom. They've benefited the kingdom of Judah. I'm not going to just throw them into prison. I'm going to use them and, and assimilate them into my culture, and I'm going to have them help us. So he took away the, the royals and the nobles. And in that group of young men were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They weren't their, those weren't their Jewish names. They were given those names. And what happened uh, was that there was this person assigned to them and there was a whole group of these young men, these young um, nobles, part of the, the royal family perhaps, part of the court. And uh, they were assigned this one person that was going to give them very specific food. It was a very specific diet that was assigned to them. It was meant to build them up, you know, make them strong and healthy. And they were going to be learning uh, the, the Chaldean ways of doing things. They were going to be learning science and astronomy and astrology, unfortunately, and all these different things that were important for the kingdom of Babylon. And they were going to be, you know, uh, given a physical regimen of, of exercise. And the point was, after a certain time, they're going to be brought before the king and put in his court and become, they were going to become part of his officials. So there was this training time. And here's what Daniel 1.8 says about that environment and that context, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch, which was assigned to them, not to defile himself. So here's Daniel, young Jewish guy, away from his parents, away from all the expectations that had been on him up to that point in his life. I mean, he's free, baby. He might be a captive with Nebuchadnezzar, but man, he's on his own. I mean, this is like Vegas. He's taken away from Jerusalem. He's in Vegas, and what, stays in, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? That's not how Daniel thought. Daniel was, was such... He, Daniel's just amazing. As young as he was, we don't know for sure, but he was young. And it's clear that David had made all of his education, all of his training, all of, all of those things that had been imposed on him as a boy in Jerusalem, growing up the way he did, he made it his own. It wasn't his parents' rules. It wasn't his parents' faith. He had decided it was his own. And that he loved and served God for himself and on his own, no matter what anybody else did. So here he is in Babylon, 
in the world, in a pagan society, he had every chance to say, all right, I get to experience life now. I get to live how I want. He had that ability. He could have said, oh, I've never had food like this. I know this is against the law. This is outside of the, the law that is under, over me as a Jew. I don't care. I'm not in Israel anymore. No, he said, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to remain holy. I'm going to remain set apart. Because I might be temporarily exiled here in Babylon, but I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what he said. That's what was his anchor. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do this. I can't. I can't have that food. I can't drink that type of drink. And the eunuch said, but okay, I hear you, but uh, I'm under the king just like you are now. And if I don't give you this food and give you this wine and we don't go through this regimen, then guess who's going to be in trouble? Me. I don't want that. What am I going to do when it's time to present you before the king and you're weak and scrawny and you don't look like the others and it's my fault? What's going to happen to me? And Daniel said, tell you what, let's do a test here. For 10 days, give us just water and vegetables. You give the others the, the regular food. You give us just water and vegetables. And at the end of that time period, you see who comes out looking better. Is that, is that fair? And the, the chief eunuch said, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do that. At the end of the time, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were healthier and stronger, uh, had, had everything about them better than the other people in their group. And so they switched the diet and gave everybody else their diet And then when they were brought before the king, he found not only did they look better, but they were smarter. They had more wisdom. They had more ability than anybody else. And they were put into a place of of authority and honor. And Daniel continued just to, to rise in the ranks all the way through the other kings that came and went during his time of exile. But he never, ever deviated from that supreme devotion to his God. You know, there was another story about lions. You know that one, right? Yeah, he remained true. Because he said, I might be living here physically, but who I am is not a Babylonian. We need to have that same mindset. We need to have that same mindset that while living in this world, we remain loyal to the King of Heaven, which we are a citizen of. Back in 1 Peter 2. Let's look at the second way we should live. So that was all the first way, practically speaking, that we should live in light of what's been made true of us. Now we're going to look at the second way that we should live because of what's been made true of us. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Peter says this. Remember, this is a, a, a second way. Be subject... For the Lord's sake, not for your sake or their sake, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, government. Uh-oh. We're, we're treading into some choppy waters, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, For this is the will of God. We all want to know what the will of God is, right? How many books are written about 
Discover God's will for your life. How to know God's will. We all want that. Well, imagine this. The Bible actually tells you what the will of God is. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, and you're going to see a similar thought to what the other verses said in that, in that first way of, of living, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, there's that, that same concept. People are going to talk. The world is going to talk. They're not going to like you. They're going to be hostile to you. They're going to slander you. They're going to criticize you. It's going to happen. But just as in the previous verses he said, don't let that get you. You keep living holy and let that talk. Let your holy life be what talks and silence them. Same way here. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, as you are subject and submissive to the human institutions over you, the government over you, even though you don't like it, even though it's not who you would pick or choose, even though it's not who you would vote for, you determine you're going to be subject not to their sake, but to the Lord's sake. That's how you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. You are free. In Christ, you're free. But look, catch this. this. That's where we stop so often. I'm free in Christ. Yay, that means I can be and do and live however I want. Right? Wrong. Look, you are free. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, and that literally actually is slaves, doulos, slaves of God. So you, you've been... Here, here's, here's what happens, okay? When you come to Christ, you are made free. You're set free from the chains of sin. You're set free from being under the weight of sin. You're set free from never being able to do anything other than sin. When you're, when you're outside of Christ, you can't ever do anything but sin. That's what you're going to do. And you have no hope in yourself of not doing that. When you come to Christ, He sets you free from the bondage of sin. He sets you free so that you can live holy. And in that freedom, in that, that new freedom, what you do is then you live for God who freed you from the sin. See how that works? You were slaves to sin. You've been set free. So now you're a slave to God and His righteousness and living for Him. So living as servants of God, that's how we are to live with our freedom. And then verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is absolutely astounding to say, for Peter to say, considering what the emperor was doing at the time of this writing. The reason Peter was writing to the Jewish Christians that were dispersed all throughout Asia and not back in Jerusalem is because the emperor was coming down hard. Persecution had started. Same with the Gentile believers. They were facing persecution from their fellow Gentiles. So the Christians, both Jew and Gentile alike, were facing persecution 
which the emperor initiated, and it just kept getting worse. This was, this was just really the beginning of the persecution in the empire, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So the fact that Peter is saying to the church of this day, honor the emperor who is as godless and evil as they come and who hates you and is starting to persecute you, he didn't say, revolt, rebel, reject. He said, honor the emperor. Not for the emperor's sake, for the Lord's sake. And again, we see an example of this elsewhere, the same thought, and this is Paul. See, Peter and Paul, man, they're, they're two peas in a pod. Sorry. Romans 13, 1 through 2, Paul says this, Let every person, there's no exception, every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Sobering. We've got to keep that in mind, Christian. I mean, we've, you know, we we're close to another, oh, another election season. And tempers are going to flare and heat's going to rise and pressure's going to mount and build. But please remember, after you do what is a, you're able to do and, the, and exercise the, the great freedom you've been given to have a say and have a voice and you cast your ballot, at the end of the day, whoever is in office God has appointed to be there. Even if it's not who you wanted, or even if it's someone that you have no idea why on earth God put them in there, He put them in there for a reason, His reason. So, from that, from all that, we can make the second application of what it means to remain loyal to the King, king of Heaven while living in this world. The first one was, you know, that we don't retreat from the world, but we reject the way the world lives. Now, with, with what he said here in these verses, the second application is we honor our king, we honor our king by honoring the people he appoints to govern us. That's how we honor our king while living on this earth. We honor our king by honoring the people he appoints to govern us. And just as I did before with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, I want to give you a real, uh, real life application of this, this principle, this truth from someone else in Scripture, from the Old Testament. Uh, King David, before he ascended the throne, uh, he was running from Saul. Saul was his father-in-law. Saul knew that David was, David was going to be king after him. He didn't like that. And Saul was hunting him. He was trying to get rid of him. He was trying to eradicate him. And he hunted him and he chased him all over the place. And he did take some breaks every now and then to go and fight the, Phil the Philistines. So he did that. And in this one context that uh, I'll share a verse from, he was fighting the Philistines as a pause from his hunting David. But he fought the Philistines. He was done with them. And he, he, a word came to him, hey, David's hiding 
in, in these, uh, the fields over here in such a place. And Saul said, okay, all right, good. I know where that is. Let's go get him. So he's, he's in these, these, this plain area. He's looking for David among the pastures. Remember, David was a shepherd. He was familiar with that kind of land. And there was a cave, and so Saul saw the cave, and, and he went into the cave to uh, use the facilities. That's what he had to do. I mean, when you got to go, you got to go, right? So he's hunting David, sees the cave. Uh, I'm going to go, and I'm going to use the facilities there. David was hiding in the, that cave, in the recesses of that cave. And David's soldiers who were loyal to him said, Hey, David, come here. Look, look, there's Saul. He's right there in the opening of the cave. This is it. This is the day. This is the day that God is delivering your enemy in your hands and he's going to put you on the throne. This is the day he promised. Go kill him. He's right there. David thinks about it. He says, no, I I can't do that. That, That's still the, the Lord's anointed. He's still king. But what he does do is he creeps up, he takes a dagger, and he cuts off a piece of the end of the robe of Saul. And then he waits for Saul to leave the cave. And as Saul goes down, David comes out of the cave and he says, My Lord, the King! And Saul turns around and there's David. And David shows him honor and he bows. And and Saul, you know, says, basically, you know, is is that you, my enemy? And and, uh, David says, well, if I were really your enemy, if, if I were the enemy that you think I am and everybody's telling you I am, uh, would I would I have spared your life? Because the Lord delivered me and delivered you into my hands. I was in the cave when you were there. I could have killed you, Saul, but I didn't. Here's what I did. You know, I held up, and he held held up the the piece of the cloth. He said, this is what I did. I could have, instead of cutting off the corner of your garment, I could have ended your life, but I spared you because I will not raise a hand against you. This is is what he, he actually said 1 Samuel 24, 10, he said, You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Wow. That shows some major loyalty, not just to uh, Saul as king over him, but David had a greater loyalty to the, the ultimate king, the king of, king of heaven. And so he knew, even though Saul was trying to kill him, even that wasn't enough for David to rebel against him and to reject his authority. He said, until God takes Saul away, he's still my king, even though he's hunting me to take my life. Oh, that we would have the same mindset that no matter who is over us as a governing authority, we recognize that it was God who put them there, and we honor them. So, what what does all of this mean? All of this together. Taking it all together, what does all this mean for us? I want to suggest to you that it points to the fact that there is a reason we weren't immediately taken to heaven when we became a Christian. When you became a Christian, you weren't just immediately caught up to heaven. Now, wouldn't that be great? 
if that had happened, but that's not what happened. You became a Christian and you still went on living in this life, in this world. Why? I want to suggest to you it's because God uses the redeemed to reach the unredeemed. That's why we weren't taken to heaven when we, when we became a Christian. That's why we were left here. Because God uses the redeemed to reach the unredeemed. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's how we're supposed to go about our life here, representing the king and the kingdom. And I, again, I, I'm drawn back to Matthew chapter 5. I read part of that passage uh, a few minutes ago. Matthew five fourteen through 16 says this, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And as we do that, both of those things, as we are the ambassadors for Christ that we're supposed to be, as we are the light shining that we're supposed to be, as we do those things, we need to remember. We need to remember. Remember these things. A light is bright in the dark because it's the opposite of darkness. A light is bright in the dark because it's the opposite of darkness. What that means is we'll never change the world by being like the world. We will never change the world by being like the world. We have to remain different. We have to be peculiar people. Not just so that we are peculiar, but so that we show them something different that they don't have. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is alive and powerful. It's active. It's relevant. It's everything we need. Help us by Your Spirit to apply Your Word. Help us to live as peculiar people, set apart. Help us to live in contrast to the dark so that people will see our light and recognize that it's not our light in and of ourselves. It's not natural to us. It's a light that was given to us by the light of the world. And help us to, as we are little lights shining on the light the Lord Jesus Christ, may they see something genuine and something different in us and not be able to help themselves but to ask us where that is coming from. Why is there that difference? What is that all about? Why do I see in you something I don't see in me? And may we use those opportunities to point them to the Lord Jesus and say, all that I am and all that I'm not is all because of who He is and what He's done in my life. Help us to be peculiar people in every way we should be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.